When Maddie and I first came up with the idea for this podcast, I had no idea where to start. What platform should I host it on? How do I get us listed or track my statistics? And that's where Buzzsprout came in. Buzzsprout is the trusted host for over 100,000 podcasters, and it was easy to see why. With their directory integrations, it was simple to ensure content being published on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. From day one, I've been so impressed with how easy it was to get set up, and their customer support team has been so quick at getting back to me whenever I had a question or needed help. Not only that, but being able to get a comprehensive list of statistics on our show performance has been a fascinating read. If you're interested in starting a podcast of your own or making the switch to a new provider, please click the link on our show notes and get a $20 Amazon gift card when you sign up for a paid plan. Bonus, by clicking on our unique URL, you help support our show, which means we'll love you forever. So why not get started today? We did and couldn't be happier. Buzzsprout, the best way to launch a professional podcast. Do it. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. So today, we're going to be conducting our first ever interview. So we're making history on our historic podcast. Pun intended. Pun intended. We hope (laughs) you'll join us in welcoming Paul Babel. Oh. Hello. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on our show. You're absolutely welcome. Thank you for inviting me. So we'll kind of dive right in. And we kind of connected on Twitter. Yeah. And you work with the Foreign Field Living History Group. So can you tell us a little bit more about what your group does? Okay. So what the Foreign Field Living History Group is, is where we're a small bunch of three kind of costumed historical interpreters and historians of just bizarre things in history. So museums and events get us in to recreate or demonstrate historical skills or various activities, sometimes to be talking through like weapons or equipment of the Second World War or of national service in the malaria emergency. That's where, where we started out. And then we kind of expanded into if it looks interesting, let's do it. So we first of all expanded into demonstrating the etiquette of pistol dueling, which is uh, we're going to be talking about today. And mm-hmm. um, we've the uh, most recent sort of project that we've just completed. We've just been at the Chalk Valley History Festival doing a live display of body snatching. Did hear yeah. that correctly? Nice. So we are the only display of body snatching you can see from actually within inside the coffin. We have a cross section of a grave, so we can show you how it's all done. And uh, for a cold, uh, one previous towards that was the Cold War Museum, one of the ones that we have over here in England, Hat Green Secret Nuclear Bunker. Hi, guys. We developed a play your own Cuban missile crisis um, <laughs> exercise for them. Yeah. So far, that has been run 75 times. Only four groups have ever managed to complete it without ending the world. That's that's actually very fascinating and disconcerting. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious to know for the cross section of the body snatching, because, you know, we covered that a little bit on our show. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what episode it was. It was a while ago. In the um, beginning. In the beginning. One of the methods was, you know, putting a rope around their neck and pulling them out of the coffin. You don't do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you say that. Um, <laughs> Oh, no. What we've done with this, of course, is we took a we took a resuscitation doll, which is okay, thank God. roughly about the same. Have placed it in the coffin, have put that in a large box, filled that with earth, so that we and it's got a perspex front, so you can watch it as we dig down, pull it out. Now uh, there is a bit of debate about the rope around the net. Mm. I personally don't think it works, but then again, I've never plucked a genuine corpse out of a coffin, so you know <laughs> the experimental archaeology is a bit weak on that score. But how we've done it we, was actually we took a long length of fabric, very much like a burial shroud, and placed it around the back and under each arm okay. and then pulled out. And that worked. And then we tried doing that with an actual human being, and it still worked. Nice. 
Um, so we know that method works. We did this with Kyle, and I'm not going to wrap a rope around his neck and try to pull him out of the coffin. He'll not forgive me, even if he survives. I know. That was my first thought when you said that. I was like, oh, please, I hope it was a dummy and not a real person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a dummy that's actually kind of modeled on a real dead person. They, when, when they made the first resuscitation doll, it was cast from a young girl that was drowned in the river saying. Yes. So mm-hmm. it was the most dead looking thing we can find. Yes, I remember that. I'm trying to think of what her, her nickname was, but yes, I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. Paul, what got you interested in history? Mostly leaving school. Um, so I found once I left school that history could actually become interesting. <laughs> but when I could pick and choose the bits of history that I wanted to do. So when I started out at school, for example, in history classes, we did our first term. I was eight years old and our history teacher covered the Battle of Hastings, the Battle of Agincourt and the Battle of Bosworth. Which is exactly the way to get a whole classroom full of eight-year-old kids into history, particularly eight-year-old boys. You know, I mean, imagine if you're, you know, you're male and you're American and your first, you know, lessons are, you know, the Battle of Lexington, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Battle of Little Bighorn. You're going to be, wow, that's, that's incredible. Mm-hmm, and yeah. that's, that's, that's what I was. Unfortunately, everything after that became 17th century crop rotation techniques and where you plant clover. And I <laughs> fell asleep very, very quickly. <laughs> I actually had a history teacher that could make the English Civil War boring. Oh, God. And so, yeah, I've, uh, I actually didn't come out of, with any history qualifications. And just as soon as I left school, I actually started paying an interest in history and the history that I wanted and was interested in and fascinated in. And it's just 28 years later, here I am. Nice. That's fascinating. So as you kind of mentioned and alluded to earlier, today we're going to be talking about duels. Mm-hmm. and specifically those that took place in England. So for our listeners who may be unaware, can you explain a little about what a standard duel was meant to accomplish and kind of how they came about? Okay, well, there's actually not really such a thing as a standard duel. Okay. <laughs> this is one of the great myths of dueling, because like most duels are different. They, they don't follow a format. It is really just what is in, agreed between the two duelists and the seconds that are representing them. And I'll come on to some examples of, you know, how the actual duel can differ a little later on. But um, broadly speaking, how and why they come about is often thought to be insults to honor. uh, And you're there to defend your honor. But people Mm -hmm. don't really look closely enough about what that actually means. Because we get into our head this idea of like the medieval chivalry idea. Mm-hmm. You know, that, oh, if you if you say a rude word to a lady, I'm going to shoot you and that'll solve it all. And it just absolutely won't. Mm-hmm. So broadly speaking, what a duel, what brings about a duel is usually an accusation or an implication of cowardice or a lack of integrity or being untrustworthy or being dishonest. Those are usually the things where a, a duel will almost solve the problem. If we take, for example, an accusation of cowardice, mm-hmm. then if you challenge that person who's made that accusation to a duel and you turn up to the duel, what are you demonstrating? You are demonstrating you are not a coward. Mm-hmm. And thus satisfaction is given and you know the rest of society can see that you are not a coward. Mm-hmm. Because the rest of society thinking you're a coward has some pretty extreme consequences. Um, and it's not just that you just won't get invited to the bridge club anymore. <laughs> I want you to think about this, particularly in view of the military, because I don't know if this happens in America or it happened in America. It certainly happened into, in the UK up until kind of the mid to late 19th century. If you're so second son and you're not going to inherit anything, then your route to developing some sort of personal fortune is to do it via the army. And so you get a lot of second sons would purchase a commission in the army. So for, for example, you're 18, 20 years old, you're you're out of education and you can spend your personal fortune, 840 pounds in 1837 on buying an ensign's commission. So second lieutenant in the cavalry. Now, what you're aiming to do at that point then is that you're aiming to have a a career in the army that gets you promoted. Mm -hmm. And let's say that you can retire at the rank of major and you can sell that commission for four and a half thousand pounds. Now, if I put that into today's money, you're talking buying your commission for about probably about 75,000 pounds, which is somewhere in the region of about $90,000 off the top of my head to current exchange rate. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of your career, you are selling that for about four hundred thousand pounds, or roughly about half a million dollars. 
Wow. And that's okay. setting you up. Now, if you are considered to be a coward, the army will cashier you out. Therefore, you are not getting your money back. You are not selling your commission. You are losing your career. You are losing your income. You're losing your marriage prospects. You're losing your inheritance. You are off to the workhouse, no matter how aristocratic you are. And that is worth risking your life to defend. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 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 And people as a rule tend not to look at it that way. When I started looking into dueling, I didn't look into what do you gain by fighting a duel. What I very much looked into was what do you lose by not defending that insult? Mm, And that that started to to open up doors. And likewise, again, if you're a politician and you're accused of being dishonest, which is going to happen an awful lot these days, (laughs) then you may call that person out because what you are proving is that you have the courage to stand by your words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, attending the duel and fighting the duel doesn't actually prove you've told the truth, but it does prove that you will stand there and defend it even with your life on your line. So it's likely to have some grounds. Uh, and it's that sort of reputation that you're looking to defend by fighting that duel. And that's broadly how a lot of them will come about. Okay. Okay. Um, where it gets really quite bizarre is how it ends up at those areas. So we have a duel that was fought in Hyde Park, Captain McNamara, and I forget his opponent. I think it's the, I think it's the Lieutenant Colonel Seddon. I could be wrong. So I remember. But that all starts with their two Newfoundland dogs get into a fight oh, no. uh, in Hyde Park. And this is one of the few, there is more than one duels that I've found that's fought to defend the honour of the dog. <laughs> Essentially, yes. <laughs> I don't know. Um, essentially, what happens is that the, the dogs are pulled off, and the um, one of them one of them says, "You know, who raises a dog like this, I'll knock into the ground." Well, that's that's a threat of violence right then and there. And of course, if you're not going to stand in answer to that, then of course, as a military officer, you're going to be deemed a coward. That ends up in a duel with a fatality. Oh God! Over a dog fight. Yeah, I mean, it's just bizarre how you can end up in that situation i mean i would die for my dog but i don't think i would die in that way yeah yeah i would quite happily shoot somebody <laughs> for my wife island terrier as well but you know <laughs> yeah. I can relate more than i probably should yeah so would you think it, that duels were more common in the in the military than kind of in public then yeah pretty much because in the military you've got more to lose there's, yeah. there's that whole commission thing there. There are whole so many ways you can lose that commission that you're going to spend a lot of time fighting duels, even though it breaches absolutely every army regulation going. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it is completely against the rules in the army. You can be cashiered out for dueling, and you can be cashiered out for refusing to duel. Work that one out. Um, <laughs> you're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, mostly the military will kind of defend its own. If that person has been dueling, then uh, the, the military will, you know, affect its own reputation accordingly. Sure. But definitely, you see, the two most common groups of people that we see fighting duels are the military, way out in front, then politicians, and then you get some professionals, authors, playwrights, those sorts of people, generally touchier kind of people. Mm. That's that's in England, you know. I mean, if you go into continental Europe, I'm surprised anybody's still alive. <laughs> So would you say that the gentry at all would take part in their own duels or would they basically just kind of be like, oh, I'm going to have somebody else kind of defend my honor for me? No, you're not going to appoint a champion. You're not going to appoint a proxy because that defeats the whole purpose of the duel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you if you call me a coward and my method of proving that I'm not a coward is to send Lindsay to go and fight on my behalf. <laughs> well that's just kind of proved my point really hasn't it (laughs) so yeah you wouldn't send somebody else to find you would have a second and a second's job each each person would have a second and their job is to actually try and resolve this without a duel taking place and this is where we kind of debunk that myth where people have a falling out and then immediately retire to the park with some guns to have it out once and for all (laughs) and this does not really happen it sounds happened a couple of times Mm -hmm. but society's not really viewed those as being duels they're more viewed them as being hot-headed fights Okay. okay So, so yeah, the job of the second would be to try and reach some sort of amicable solution. And if no amicable solution can be reached, 
at that point, the seconds would make all the arrangements for the duel. This is where the non-standard duel comes in because there's, you know, the, the distance you are apart mm-hmm. is, you know, very much decided by the principles, uh, decided mm-hmm. by the duelists themselves uh, and approved by the seconds. The weapons, they're going to be decided by the seconds and probably even provided by the seconds. Second's job is to get a doctor and or a priest if need be, um, as well to decide the location, the ground, the time, everything. The whole idea being is that once once a challenge has been issued, the two principles don't speak to each other again. Everything is done through the seconds. And we still have seconds today. If you watch a major league boxing match, what's the last thing they say before the bell? Seconds out. So you kind of alluded to it a little bit as you were talking about the duels, but other than, you know, calling somebody a coward or that they're dishonest, what were some of the other more common causes of duels? Like, was it something like you slept with my wife and things like that? Like, are there, were those the only two real common? Yes, but again, it comes, it comes in a very convoluted way back to cowardice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So probably the last fatal duel fought on English soil. Um, that occurs when there are two gentlemen, and they're basically arguing over one flirting with the other one's wife. Mm-hmm. And it, basically, it broadly comes down to, I'm going to flirt with your wife, and what are you going to do about it? Because you barely <laughs> do anything about it. And, oh, look, we're on Brown Down Beach with two, two guns, and, uh, and there you go. So broadly speaking, everything comes in a really convoluted way back to, are you a coward? This is like 90% of duels are about that, even if that wasn't the actual insult that was put in in the first place. It's that implication to the rest of society. You don't have the stones to do something about it. Okay. Now, you you touched on, at least with the military, that it was was not really allowed, like damned if you do, damned if you don't. Was it legal uh, outside of the military? In a word, no. Um, I, I often get asked this is like people people ask me at events where we're like recreating pistol duels and the guy so so when did it become illegal it's like it's always been illegal <laughs> shooting a man has never been you know legally allowed all the way back to if you're of that particular thought thou shalt not kill it's mm-hmm. you know it's that set in stone so no it's not legal but it is remarkably difficult to prosecute for because if you're, if you consider that, I say standard, you're likely, but uh, you have two principles, both of which are involved in what is effectively a crime, then you've got yeah. two seconds who are both accomplices, accessories to murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you've got a doctor. It's remarkably hard to get two witnesses that will testify to a murder having happened. Okay. And you need two witnesses in order to be able to prove beyond reasonable doubt. And a lot of the time, the doctor would look the other way. And I don't just mean that metaphorically. They would turn around so that they didn't see who fired the shot. You know, I oh, noticed okay. that in movies, but I never. I thought it was just like, I don't want to see it versus I don't want to be a witness. Yeah. That makes if you don't sense. see it, you can't be called on as a witness to it. <laughs> right, yeah. And therefore, you, you know, you can't... You, becomes almost impossible to prove beyond reasonable doubt that a willful murder took place hmm. because you're not necessarily turning up to the duel with the express intention of killing your opponent. You're turning up to the duel with the express intention of proving you're not a coward. Mm-hmm. So the premeditation to kill somebody isn't there. Interesting. Okay. Or certainly isn't provable. Right. Um, secondly, you're not going to get two witnesses that said, yes, I saw him shoot him. Well, and is it also kind of, it's all, it's almost like a gentleman's agreement. So it's, so it's also something like they're both agreeing to whatever is taking place. So you can't necessarily say, oh, he just came at me and shot me. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because you're both agreeing to the, the, whatever the agreed upon terms are of the duel. It's fight club. Yeah. The, the inherent kind of like two-sided nature of it um, doesn't kind of hold up in law. But again, it's another of those things where it's incredibly hard to prosecute because no, nobody who is in that field is actually going to file charges. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're dead. Um, unless something deeply, deeply unfair and outside the rules of the duel happens. And that has been the case. There was there, there was one duel which I mentioned earlier about needing seconds to go and calm things down and sort things out. But uh, there was one that was actually fought in a barracks room um, literally about 12 minutes after the actual insult. Oh, geez. And he didn't even give the guy a chance to sort of raise his pistol. He just straight shot him. And he's the only duelist I've been able to find that was actually hanged for willful murder. 
because yeah. there are an awful lot of witnesses to that. It was little more than an armed pub brawl. Wow. Yeah, I wouldn't really call that one a duel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, to give, I mean, to give you an idea of just how difficult it is to prosecute, okay, then I've just mentioned I've been able to find one with willful murder hanging um, from British, not just English, British dueling. And three convictions of manslaughter where they couldn't prove there was an intent to kill, but they did prove that someone killed somebody else. Mm-hmm. So that's four convictions. There are 168 fatal duels in Hyde Park alone in London. That's just one park. And yeah, so it gives you an idea <laughs> of just how difficult this is to actually prosecute. Yeah. I know we mentioned pistols, but were there other common weapons for duels? Um, there's some common weapons. There's some very uncommon weapons um, as well. Again, whatever is agreed by uh, the principals and their seconds. Wing Britain tended to move away from sword duels about mid-18th century. Okay. Because actually fighting with a sword just proves you're a better swordsman than the other person. And okay. it doesn't really kind of settle that whole cowardice argument. Mm-hmm. So, because if you've got somebody who's used to whittling a temp peg with a pen knife versus Zorro, <laughs> Zorro doesn't need a great deal of courage in order to go into that, does he? He's no. very certain no. that he's going to come out of that without a scratch. But the thing is, with pistols, your life expectancy has got no bearing on how good you are mm-hmm. with a pistol. It's down to how good or how lucky your opponent is, or in some cases, how unlucky your opponent is, uh, as to whether anything happens to you. The last duel ever fought on Scottish soil, which is 1826, and it's fought between David Landale and a George Morgan. Now, David Landale was a linen merchant who shot his bank manager. I'm sure we all want to get behind him on that. Um, But yeah, now George Morgan, who was the bank manager, before he became a bank manager, had an absolutely illustrious career in the Royal Marines. Um, He was an absolute crack shot. He'd been handling guns all his life. (laughs) David Landell had never picked up a gun at all. And yet in that duel, the first time he ever fired a gun and he shot his opponent clean dead. Wow. That's... Yeah, so we we tend to go with pistols because it's it's got that it's got that fairness to it and it's got that requiring courage. If you go into continental Europe and to France, they have a tendency to fight with swords quite a lot. Okay, I'm not an expert on continental dueling. I couldn't really give you why, but you see a lot of sword duels going on, sort of France and in Germany. It was actually a required part of military training. You have got dueling scars all the way up to the First World War. Wow, um, but. But yeah, we, we kind of abandoned Sword Duel. Our last Sword Duel was 1754, and it was it was between two nobles, Hamilton and Mohan, and they successfully killed each other. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, right. <laughs> doesn't really solve anything. <laughs> no. So I know we you touched on like the majority of the reasons, you know, you don't want to be seen as a coward. But if you did take the coward route... <laughs> And didn't want to participate in the duel. Were there any sort of protections from like, like, no, I really don't want to do that? Um, yes and no. <laughs> Which is exactly murder? what we're wanting, isn't it? Harassment or murder? <laughs> it's basically, it all comes down to really how society views you in doing so. Okay. Which is a bit outside of your control. And it's also remarkably difficult to ex- um, explain. But if I give a couple of examples of, you know, I've got an example of somebody who declined a duel um, because he fought the duel before. So it's an Irishman, it's an Irish politician, mm-hmm. and very big on Catholic emancipation, Daniel O'Connell. He fought a duel with a chap called John Norcotester and he killed him. And he didn't mean to kill him. Aww. He was actually aiming to miss, but flintlock pistols are not the world's most accurate things. So he was actually trying to miss, and he hit him, and he killed him. And he swore at that point he would never fight another duel. Gotcha. Okay. Now, he was challenged to another duel, and he very publicly declined it. And society didn't bat an eyelid. They didn't mind at all. So his reputation wasn't damaged. There were no consequences. You know, His, yeah. his integrity seemed to be fine by everybody. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so it wasn't so much a protection, but it's all really it's it, it's up to the rest of society how they treat you. And this is broadly what this is all about. You know, it's all about making sure other people think highly of you rather yeah. than actually sorting anything out by shooting. This month as I as I understand, we've just passed the anniversary of probably your most famous duel, which will be Hamilton and Burr, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you're like, Burr took part in that duel, issued the challenge, shot Hamilton, and was utterly ruined by it. Yes. Yeah. You know, he, his life was pretty much over, and he, you know, he, his thing of got getting socially crucified for actually taking part in the duel. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
So that's the very thing of the yes and no there. Yeah. It's, it's really, it comes down to the other people yeah. and what that society circle thinks about you. That makes yeah. sense. To be fair, he was also kind of insane. but Quite probably, yes. <laughs> so that kind yeah, of has right. something to do with his reputation as well. Yeah. He tried to get some of the states to secede so he could create his own empire mm-hmm. and uh, become emperor of his own country within the United States. So if that doesn't tell you a little bit about who he is... Um, I don't know what will. Right. Yeah. And, the, and the whole, did he or did he not have sexual relations with his daughter? Yeah. Kind of thing. Wow, that escalated quickly. It, yeah, it, yeah. It did. Yeah. Because at first, you know, you, you hear about him and you're like, yeah, okay, okay. He's not so bad. And then he gets older and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> what oh, happened? No. What? You see, what you say on this is this highlights that whole how the rest of society views you mm-hmm. yeah. kind of thing because yep. uh, you just basically said yeah he's he's trying to start you know potentially a, a a civil war and a secession within the United States he may or may not have slept with his daughter we don't know but the thing that actually <laughs> ruins him is that Hamilton fired wide and Burke fired to kill yeah yep. and that's that's actually what ruins him, his conduct in the duel. Mm-hmm. Yep. She does sleeping with your daughter. Well, that's a secondary issue, really, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and they, this is, it just highlights that, that whole thing of this is all about how the rest of your peer group view you and mm-hmm. can you maintain your place in that peer group. That's true. Yeah. So you mentioned that you put together a few famous duels from English history. So would you like to share some of those with us? Yes, I've actually got, um, so the exam- examples that I've got, I've got three from British history. And I've actually got one from French history because it's just too great to pass up. Nice. Um, so I promised you some of the more bizarre and bonkers duels. Things. And just going back to when you said the common weapons, um, they've been sausages, billiard balls, they've been used as weapons. <laughs> And in duels. Perfect. So that was a Prussian duel, it was a sausage eating duel. It's a large plate of sausages, some of which are poisoned with mercury. Go for nice. it. Nice. Fun. Nice. Fun. And yeah, there was one duel where two duelists threw billiard balls at each other across a pub function room, and that ended in a fatality. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you think you really Americans can be violent, we'll be doing it for hundreds of years before that. <laughs> well, where did you um, think we got it from? Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so kind of in date order, some of my favourite duels, the 27th of May, 1789, this is in Wimbledon Common, and the only duel I've been able to find that featured a member of the royal family. Okay. So uh, his royal highness, uh, the Duke of York, so the equivalent of Prince Andrew at the time, and the Lieutenant Colonel Lennox. Uh, how that came about um, is, again, convoluted back to cowardice. So the Duke of York overhears remarks at a gentleman's club that Colonel Lennox, that he felt... Colonel Lennox should not have stood for. Okay. That's it. That's, that's, that was basically <laughs> what happened. At this point then, of course, what that says to Colonel Lennox is two things. It's like, number one, a member of the royal family thinks I don't have the stones to stand up for myself. And number two, I've got a lieutenant colonel's commission in the, um, he was in, yeah, his cavalry. So he's got a commission that is worth probably three quarters of a million dollars today wow. that's now at risk. Yeah. I'd fight a member of the royal family for £750,000. It's fair, I'd fight a member of the royal family for £750. But um, (laughs) but yeah, they met on Wimbledon Common, and uh, the first shot is said to have singed the Duke's curls. Mm. Um, The bullet went that close to his head, um, at which point the Duke agreed that satisfaction had been offered. If Lennox is not a coward, <laughs> and she refused to fire on an officer. Um, satisfaction was granted. They uh, they left. Perfect. I love this one. Uh, it's the 12th of January, 1796, and it's fought at Cobham in Surrey. Now, I don't know the specifics of what kicked this duel off. It was a dispute in an opera house. That's as much as I know. Okay. However, it was conducted between a Major Sweetman and a Captain Watson, both military officers. The seconds agreed the kind of standard 10 yards apart to, to face and shoot. But the problem is that Major Sweetman was incredibly short-sighted. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, so he at that point <laughs> complained that he couldn't see Captain Watson. So he called out, wait for it, he called out to ask if they could close the distance to a point where he could see. Sure. You know what, why not? They closed to four yards. Oh God! Stop it! Now, if you haven't think it, now take good, stand up and take good Stop. four strides 
that's what four yards looks like. They're oh almost point blank at each other. And uh, yeah, Major Sweetman did pay dearly for that because he was shot straight through the heart. Oh my um, God. Captain Watson was shot in the thigh, which tells you just how bad Major Sweetman's aim still was. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Captain Watson was later arrested for the willful murder of Major Sweetman, but uh, he was he was acquitted. It's like I say, almost impossible to prosecute. Yep. Yeah. And 21st of March, 1829 in Battersea Fields. I'm hoping in a couple of months' time at the Chelsea History Festival, because I'll be literally the other side of the river, we're going to try and recreate this this duel. But this was okay. fought between the 10th Earl of Wilchelsea and the Duke of Wellington. Oh. And this is one of two occasions, and remember I said it's never been legal. Mm-hmm. Yeah? This is one of two occasions in British history where a gentleman was fought a duel whilst serving as Prime Minister. Okay. Wow. Um, so in Parliament, uh, Winchelsea had uh, made some accusations towards uh, towards the Prime Minister, um, and he used the phrase, under the cloak of some coloured show of zeal for the Protestant religion, who has carried on an insidious design for the infringement of our liberties and the introduction of popery into every department of the state. <laughs> and what that basically means is Wellington's trying to put forward an awful lot of Catholic emancipation legislation, but he's stating that you don't have the courage to do it openly and honestly. Remember, oh. it all comes back to cowardice. Uh, yep. So uh, Wellington challenged Winchelsea to a duel. They met in uh, Battersea Fields, which is just kind of south of the south of the river. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know London at all, kind of where it's about three miles south of Hyde Park. Okay. And uh, what happened there was they, uh, I believe Winchelsea had actually agreed that he was in the wrong before that duel even started. Um, But he did feel that uh, he'd done such an affront that it ought to receive the Duke's fire. Um, And both of them fired wide to deliberately miss. Now, they say that. Winchelsea, we know, fired wide to deliberately miss. Wellington was a crap shot anyway, so we've got absolutely no idea whether or not he was deliberately (laughs) trying to miss. Um, He was a great general, uh, but he was a rubbish shot. And, and my last one, and I've saved the best for last, this is the French one, and I absolutely love this. This is fought between two academics in Paris, uh, and awesome. Monsieur Grandpre and then Monsieur Le Piquet. 3rd of May, 1808, and what marks this duel out, above all others, is his fought about 500 feet above Paris in hot air balloons with blunderbusses. What? <laughs> so it's actually, the, we, we've got a newspaper article that covers it from Northampton Mercury, 23rd of July, 1808, and it actually gives an account of the duel. It's, oh, my gosh. They, they decided as academics that because they thought on a higher plane, they should settle their differences on a higher plane, hence oh, the balloons. Sure. Of sure. Sure. So, yeah, they, um, they, they about, actually, come to the newspaper, a height of about 900 yards, so probably about 2,500 feet, actually, up into the air when they shot each other's blunderbusses. And I just love, I'll read you from the newspaper extract. Monsieur Le Piquet fired his piece ineffectually. Almost immediately after fire was returned by Monsieur Grand Prix and penetrated his adversary's balloon, the consequence of which was its rapid descent. <laughs> but the next bit is the bit that you need to listen really carefully to. So, and Monsieur Le Piquet and his second were both dashed to pieces on a housetop over which the balloon fell. <gasps> what sort of second would actually get in to that balloon? So you know oh, this is going no. to end. That's insane. Oh, but yeah, that was that, that was what I find pretty much the weirdest duel. <laughs> That I've seen. Oh my god. I'm sure there is weirder out there. I just haven't found it yet. Oh my god. Wow. So words just failed everybody there, really, didn't you? I know. I'm still trying to process because I did you did you ever play the PC Indiana Jones games? Uh no. Okay. There was a there was a hot air balloon like thing that you had to do and like Nazis would shoot at it. And you had to like knock it. (laughs) So that's all I could think about was Indiana Jones getting shot at by Nazis in hot air. I, know. I didn't play that, so I was very much a Monkey <laughs> Island chap. <and> so. <laughs> you know, it's fine. So for people who may be interested in learning more about living history or even ways that they can get involved, what advice would you give them on, on kind of where to start? First of all, decide actually what you're interested in. My route into all of this was that I I joined kind of several reenactment and living history groups, various periods of history, and uh, worked my way through there until I kind of found a group that I was comfortable with and also set my own up to do the things that all the other groups weren't doing that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
the three of us were part of a much larger medieval group that we're still part of. But we went, no, we want to do all of these other things and these people don't. So let's set up our own group that goes and does them. Yeah. I will probably say the best piece of advice that I can give to anybody doing that is, yeah, number one, find your period of history that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. And then go and look for a kind of reenactment group, living history group that does that and join them, go along. The first group you join is not the one you're going to stay with. Okay. You will probably, okay. It took me about three attempts to find a group that I was kind of settled in and have been a member of for about 12 years now. Okay. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of egos in living history and things like that. And you're not going to get along with everybody. And yeah, the first everybody said to me, the first group you join is the one that you won't stay with. And they were right. Hmm. There can be some acrimony along the way, you know. Yeah. And then, yeah, the other thing I would say is if you're going to get involved in living history, do bear in mind it's it's not a hobby, it's a lifestyle choice. Okay. Uh, so, you know, you're going to spend – we have a saying in reenactment, which is like, parents get your kids into reenactment because they'll never be able to afford drugs. <laughs> nice. And, and it, it's true. I mean, I'm buying so much – just so much stuff. That my, my collection of reenactment kit costs more than my car. Oh, wow. And um, so that's, you, but you build it up steadily over time. I mean, I've been doing this right. for decades. So, yeah. you know, so you build everything up. Um, but you'll find that most um, groups are, you know, open to new members. They probably have all the kit and various costume and things that you need in order to be able to do it. I don't know how the American scene works for that, aside from the fact that you've got so many American Civil War reenactors, or mm-hmm. as you call them, Civil War reenactors. Yes. They're, they're everywhere. And of course, you have that constitutional right to have guns as well, which makes things a lot easier uh, yeah. for becoming a reenactor. Uh, we have yeah. to jump through a whole load of legal hoops in order to do that, in order basically even just, just carry a replica. Oh. So, the yeah, we, we've got that to wrangle with, which I believe your own system in that is a lot less complicated. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that and, sounds very Again, good. you know, it's, it, they, you know, guns are not cheap, particularly antique firearms are not yeah. cheap. Though, so get ready to get ready to spend money. Nice. Well, and I would assume there aren't a lot of people who just specialize in uh, repairing said firearms that that's just like their their main business is to repair and maintain antique I mean, firearms so i'd imagine it could be pretty costly yeah well we've got some I and mean, we, we we paid something like about 650 pounds for our dueling pistols and our dueling pistols aren't even real oh wow um, so as because because we, we we create that four four yard duel that i mentioned so we mm-hmm. got specially engineered blank firing ones that fire away from us they look realistic but we're not in any danger from accidentally yep. being shot by the remains of a blank okay that's good yeah, that's crazy you don't want to be on an episode of like historical deaths or whatever on like the <laughs> horrible history in, stupid in, deaths in, in, in <laughs> investigation yeah. discovery or something yeah discovery plus so to kind of close it out is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know either about you or what you do or kind of about the foreign field living history group well i would say to people if you if you're interested in what we do if you've got any questions or anything like that contact us you can follow us on twitter you can follow the group at foreign field lhg or you can follow me at, at paul bavel i'm easy enough to track down uh, if you search on facebook for foreign field living history group you'll find our facebook page follow us there Thanks. We are hopefully in about three or four weeks uh, launching a podcast of our own, History Rage. Nice. Um, and you can catch us every Monday on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash foreign field. And we do a little 10 minute history hit pretty much every Monday of any period, uh, any thing. Uh, we are looking at filming a whole series of uh, guides to historic skills, such as like how to fight a duel, how to snatch body, how to escape from a German prisoner of war camp. Um, mm. <laughs> how to survive on gruel the life of a transported prisoner and there's all this sort of stuff that, that's coming out oh, next week's we've next week's episode is going to be about breaking on the wheels part of a horrid uh, horrific execution series and then uh, we're into victorian and the london garrotting panic of 1862 and whatever comes up as interesting we'll make a film on but yeah, that's that's how you can uh, how you can stay on track with us. Uh, if you're in the UK, we're hopefully going to be at the Chelsea History Festival, uh, which is the last weekend of September. I think then we're closing down for the year. We'll see what 2022 brings and how many of our regular events COVID has stopped. Yeah, I would imagine that yeah. it's been kind of difficult to be able to do anything as far as reenactments and stuff this past year. Did you guys do any digital events or anything? We were due to actually do a 
presentation because we have a show called the A to Z of Crime, the Letter of the Law, where the audience will basically select a, a letter from A to Z, and if they come out with that, say M, you know, we then have to come out with the historical crime fact that goes along with that. The lockdown occurred two days before we were supposed to do the first show of yeah. that. We'd sold out. Oh, we had to defend everybody. Ouch. But we're hoping to get that back up for next year. And also we've already been booked for A to Z of historic A to Z of Surprising Historic Medicine, which was a surprise to us because we didn't have that show, but we do have enough time to write it. Nice. So so yay, that's us. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for agreeing to talk to us, Paul. Like yeah. you're welcome. It's been fun. I am so pleased that we were able to connect on Twitter and that you agreed to come on our show and talk to us about duels and a little bit more about English history. It's been really fun. If you ever want me back on, I am more than happy to attend. Thank you. I'm currently studying suffragettes and body snatchers. The two are not linked. (laughs) That's good. Hopefully not. That's That's too bad. Underground ring. I'll have you on again for body snatching because that's always an interesting topic to discuss. Mm -hmm. What's going on, everyone? This is your girl, Julene, host of It Goes Down in the PM. We talk about everything from work, motherhood, local celebrities to comic books. Tune in every Friday at 1 o'clock to find out what really goes down in the PM. Again, I would like to thank Paul for being on the show. Yeah, that was super interesting. It was extremely interesting. Yeah. I'm excited for him and his podcast that he's starting. Absolutely. And talking about all the things he's covered on his YouTube channel. Now I know what I want to spend all my time on. Right. What you're going to be listening to during work. (laughs) When I'm not writing stuff. Yep. It's hard to write when you're listening to things about like horrible murders and things <laughs> right. like that. You're like, this new watch has disembodied, <laughs> disemboweled tissue. Yep. Like, wait. Stay tuned for Paul's podcast. We are for sure going to mention it when it goes live. Absolutely. And we do have a listener question this week. We are running very low. So <laughs> I'm going to put another request out soon for more questions. This one comes from our friend Mariah. Okay. Hi, Mariah. She wants to know, what is the spookiest bathroom you have been in? Ooh, spookiest bathroom. Do you want to go first? I have to think about this. I honestly don't know. (laughs) Really? (coughs) Um, I'm trying to think. Do you think our cousins listen to this? Yes. I would. Oh, no. I'm going to say the one. We can be honest. Yeah, definitely the one in Alton, their family bathroom. That whole house was haunted as hell. Oh, I thought you were going to say our other cousins. No. I mean, you could definitely like they had spooky There's stuff. There's something too. about cousins bathrooms. Yeah. Cousin, cousin bathrooms. <laughs> cousin bathrooms are bad because at my at our aunt's house in Hornick. I'm sorry. I love you guys so much. But the basement bathroom was yeah. always was always so creepy to go to the yeah, bathroom in because so it's in like an unfinished basement. Mm-hmm. But if you like look to the right when you're sitting on the toilet, there's like racks of children's toys yep and nine times out of ten there'd be like a doll staring at you when you're trying to like pee and it was just terrifying and they're all like older toys Mm -hmm. like i'm talking like pre-80s well we had a lot of fun messing with them like don't get us wrong we played with those toys yeah we played with those toys (laughs) yeah definitely not in the bathroom we played with those toys they were cool toys but i'm saying like having like cabbage patch dolls and other like creepy things staring at you yeah while you're going to the bathroom in a bathroom that doesn't have a whole lot of lighting and then like where like the scary furnace is on your left yeah while you're going to the bathroom yeah i'm sure you're probably thinking oh i went to the bathroom in a haunted house that hasn't happened yet but this is real close (laughs) Uh, I will say, too, though, the upstairs bathroom was also not great because it was a, a blood red bathroom. Do you remember that? That's it was like right. And it had a lot of red. dark stone. It had dark stone. And um, she always had candles lit in the bathroom. And so th- there was never like real lighting. It was just candlelit lighting, even at like nine in the morning. Yes. So that sucked. <laughs> Terrifying like a small child who was afraid of her own shadow that didn't bode well so yeah 
forgot about I remember that. being stupid enough to try to play Bloody Mary in that bathroom. You one did time. not. I did. You're so dumb. I know I'm so dumb. I'm surprised I'm still alive. Yeah. Thank you, Mariah. And yeah, I'm sorry if we offended our cousins. I love you guys. It did smell great. Like, to be fair. To be fair, that bathroom smelled amazing at all times. Yeah, because she was an Avon lady and it was like this. It was like a cinnamon cookie all the time. Yes. I remember that. I think that's yes. what made it less scary, actually, was the fact that it, it smelled really good. nice. And it was always pristine. The candles weren't the move. That was not the move for a small child. That didn't work. Yeah. So, so on that note, what's something good you'd like to share? <laughs> something good this week. I started my new job mm -hmm. and it's going very well. I'm glad. I'm already doing very, like getting along with all my coworkers. Yeah, things are, things are flowing well. I'm already starting to pick up some of the work. So it's kind of nice. You know, because your first week is usually go over this and do that and all that fun, like kind of slower stuff. And I feel like I've actually been able to contribute more this week. I made a few graphics and even though they weren't like that fantastical, just the fact that they were like, wow, that's actually nice. <laughs> like, hey, I contributed. <laughs> so I did it. Yeah. It, I don't know. It just that's my... Well, that's my main good thing. And I actually have another one, which is with the new job, I've been able to kind of start a new routine uh, with Willie. We've been able to walk every morning because we need to get back in the habit of walking. He's he's not a very good leash walker anymore after the mm -hmm. pandemic. And now he like waits for me to eat breakfast because I typically run lower in the morning. So I have to eat breakfast before we go on a walk. And the second I get it ready and I'm like, do you want to go for a walk? He like loses his mind, chases me to the door and is like, heck yeah, I am. Let's do this. So that's great. It's just been really fun. What about you? What's one good thing this week for you? It's been a very busy week because I'm, I'm back from taking a week off. Yep. And my boss is going to be taking two weeks off starting next Wednesday. So it's kind of like... So you're just kind of swapping out? It's kind of like crunch time where it's like we're going over the to-do list. We've had several meetings in a row where more items get added to my to-do list. And I actually, I'm one of those people that uses notebooks to keep track of all my notes. Wow. Yeah. And I like handwrite all my notes. And gross. <laughs> I'm sorry that I'm too analog for you. Yeah, but it is. I had to start a new notebook. So that's kind of disorienting for me because I still have my old one with all my notes, you know, for yeah. whatever the certain things are. But I did create my to do list in my new notebook based off what was in my old notebook. And yeah, what's the good thing? <laughs> the, good, the good thing is, even though it is it, it seems like a never ending to do list. I've actually been like knocking a bunch of things off the list nice. and some of them are things that have been on my list prior to this week, like for a long time. And I just haven't had time to do them. Yeah. So I am feeling pretty good about the fact that I'm able to like knock these things out pretty quickly. And I'm hopeful that while she is on vacation, I can kind of get caught up on things and actually get back to blog writing and things like that and social media, which I haven't been able to do a whole lot of just because we've had so many things like pop up at the last minute that have yeah. required a lot more of our time. So on that note, we're going to start shutting her down. Sounds good. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. We're on YouTube. If you like to just stream stuff at work on YouTube, mm -hmm. you should subscribe to our channel. Yep. We have several lists. One is just is all of the episodes and one is just the cramp word episodes, which people have a lot of fun with. Mm -hmm. So if you just want to laugh at people talking about Victorian slang terms that they don't understand and that no one really understands because none of them make any sense, <laughs> you can subscribe to that playlist and enjoy. Perfect. We also have a P.O. box. And actually, we received a letter that I am Stop going it. to read on the air. <sighs> So this comes from our lovely friend, Ashley. Hi, Ashley. And she sent it on July 21st, 2021. And she nice. says, Dear Lindsay and Maddie, I heard your P.O. box was lonely. Aww. And since I'm too poor to send a trampoline, <laughs> I thought I'd write a quick letter to let you know that you're wonderful women and excellent podcasters. Stop. 
if we are just all meat sacks doing our best, you two can rest assured you are the top of the barrel. Love, Ashley. Thank you, Ashley. It's so nice. I love you, Ashley. You're my favorite person that lives in a crypt. Favorite meat and sack. My favorite. You're my favorite meat sack. Yeah. I mean that in the best way possible. <laughs> I mean that in a very non-threatening way. Yes. <laughs> so if you'd like to be like Ashley and write us a lovely letter or send us whatever strikes your fancy, you can yeah. do so at Yield Crime Podcast. P.O. Box 341, mm-hmm. Wyoming, Minnesota, 55092. As I mentioned a little while ago, we are running low on listener questions. And we love the questions that you guys send us because some of them are so crazy and weird and off the wall that it tends to make us stop and scratch our heads a little bit. Yeah, like the cousin bathrooms, you know? Yeah, like the cousin bathrooms. Who knew? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you'd like to send us some questions and get a shout out on the show, mm-hmm. you can do so at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support us, but you can't do so financially and you can't help purchase a trampoline, which I get it. <laughs> You can do so by leaving a five-star rating and review like our friends over at the Unsolved Mysteries Solved podcast. And they left this review for us on Podchaser. And they say, Lindsay and Madison are really great together. You would think that being sisters, they would automatically have chemistry. And they do. But that's not (laughs) always the case. That's why it was so awesome to listen to them talk about random true crime topics from the way back when. I truly enjoyed the Terror of the South China Seas episode. So good. Not enough praise or recommendation in the world to do these two justice. Listen and find out for yourself. Thank you, guys. That's so nice. Thank you. If you would like to support us financially, which we are never going to say no. No. You can do so on Buy Me a Coffee and leave a one-time donation. You can also support us on a monthly basis. And get something back by joining our Patreon for as low as a dollar a month. At all of our tiers, you get early ad-free access to our episodes. And obviously, if you donate at like the $5, $10, and $15 tiers, you get a little bit extra. You can also purchase merch on our Public. We are going to be releasing new designs. I think we agreed to do a new design each week mm-hmm. this month. So we did stay tuned for that. I'm going to do my best to keep my end of the bargain. I already and did mine and I'm super stoked. <laughs> they're pretty great. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so I'm very excited for you guys to see them. Yep. On that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime. <laughs>